0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We're picking up in our study of this great book, and we are exploring the conversion of Saul. And it's a very uh, powerful section here in Acts. And as Ted mentioned, it really highlights the grace of God, it, it highlights uh, the power of God to save, to take an enemy who's breathing threats and to make him a friend of God and an advocate. I thought about that this morning as I looked on the, the news that uh, one of the terrorist groups out of Africa has decided to turn all of their energies and efforts against the Christians in Africa, to seek to wipe them out and to target them and as i was uh, reading that report this morning in the news and how this was kind of put out on social media by this group and how they were going to take a play out of the isis playbook and go after the christians in africa i thought <clears throat> you know this isn't the first time the church has faced this and the reality is that you cannot wipe out what the king of the world is establishing and and one of the great enemies of the church one of the first great enemies saul became the greatest advocate and, 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 and I was just been praying for, this morning I was thinking about that, I was praying for the, uh, the leaders of these terrorist groups, that God would convert them and turn them into missionaries. And I think that would be a, a great prayer, wouldn't it? You know, because God can do that, and does do that, and will do that. And, uh, and, uh, and so we have a great thing before us, the power of God, and the power of God to save. And, and we're going to see that this morning here as we look in Acts chapter 9, at the conversion of Saul. It's a very familiar story for us um, because many of us are, uh, know this account of Saul and how he, an enemy, and God saves him, and Ted read it for us and, and eventually goes on to uh, be known as Paul. The only re- his name change wasn't any big theological significance. Saul is his Hebrew name. If you convert Saul into Greek, it becomes Paul. And because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, he just took the Greek name. Paul. It just means Saul. Same name. I might inadvertently say Paul or Saul. I might flip back and forth. I'm not aware of that. I tried to focus that it is Saul here. But if I say Paul, just in your brain, insert Saul, right? That made sense. I've already lost myself, so you're probably really lost. <laughs> Don't listen to me. Just surf the net. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. So we're going to look at this. And this is a pretty interesting story it, it's, it falls at a pretty interesting time in Acts. And I want to just point this out to you so you can see this. Um, last week, I kind of mentioned this. Up until this point, as is, is the Spirit of God is moving, these great evangelistic revivals are going on, and thousands of people are getting saved. Just these big, massive movements. And, 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 and so you see it among the Jews, and you know several thousand here, several thousand here, and then it goes out to the Samaritans, thousands more. And these big movements happen. And then at the end of chapter 8, We we, we zero in on one conversion, the Ethiopian eunuch. Then in chapter 9, we zero in on another conversion of one person, Saul. And then in chapter 10, we zero in on another conversion, Cornelius. And and, and Luke just suddenly takes our attention from these big mass movements and zeroes in on these people. And these people are very significant. The eunuch is a fulfillment, of Isaiah 56, 3 through 7, the passage Jesus quote when he cleansed the temple, that the eunuchs will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And that God will give them something greater than, than the heritage of having children. God will give them a name that will never be wiped off the planet, the name Child of God. They'll get that name and they'll hold on to it for all eternity. And God's making good, and this Ethiopian eunuch becomes the first fulfillment and the first time that, you know, the first the kind of entrance and the moment where God has made good on that promise. And Isaiah 56. Of course, today, chapter 9, we see Saul. He's the fulfillment of God, saying, I am going to bring people from every tribe and nation into my kingdom, and they'll have a seat at my table. And Paul is that apostle that goes out and does that. Powerful. Chapter 10, Cornelius, he is a Roman soldier, his conversion to faith in Christ is important because he's the one that, that God uses to convince Peter that, God really, that Jesus really is Lord of the nations. Peter has some major hang-ups with this. He's struggling. And uh, Cornelius is the one that helps him overcome that. So these stories are very important. And the reason and Luke focuses on them to help us understand how the gospel is advancing. And we noted this past couple weeks that there are kind of three things that go on as the gospel's advancing. And these three streams I'm going to point out for you almost every week, Lord willing. And the goal is this to show you these streams to understand how God unfolds his gospel. And the three streams are this, that people were following Jesus, right? They, they saw their faith in Christ as, as, as a way of following him. And that in the course of this, they cared for others. And in the course of caring for others, they advanced the kingdom. And those were the commitments of these people. We're disciples of Jesus. We're going to follow him no matter what. We're going to show care for others, and we're going to recognize that we have to advance his kingdom. Now, what we're going to see today is that following and caring and advancing is tough. It is very tough. There's struggles at all points of those huge struggles. It's tough to follow Jesus. It's tough to submit to him as Lord and to say your agenda is more important than my agenda. That's tough, isn't it? That's a tough thing to do. It's tough to obey him. It's tough to to say, yes, I will submit and surrender my life to you. It's tough to care for others because people are sinners, and it's tough. And it's tough because sometimes caring creates risk. We're going to see that today. It's tough to advance the kingdom. Why? Because people hate Jesus. And they stand opposed to it. And we're going to see those difficulties emerge. In fact, you see in your outline, there's a tension here. A tension between following and caring and a tension between advancing and caring. There's just tension everywhere. And, and as we go through the story, I want to highlight these tensions for you. Because I was thinking about it for us as Christians, as we try to follow, care, and advance, we do need to recognize it is not easy It is really hard. And I want us to get a glimpse of this, but I also want us to get a glimpse of of the power of God and the power of the gospel and the sovereignty of God and these great truths about who God is and how He upholds and and works and how He's in control. And, And as you see God in this and His power, that is what takes the pressure and the fear away. When the reality of the fear of following and caring advancing becomes bigger than God, then we shrink back in all three of those areas. When God is bigger than those things, then we press forward. I want you to see that today here. So let's look here at the first thing here, the the tension between following and caring. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, So, that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, we're back to Saul again. The last time we saw Saul was in chapter 8, that he was, you know, in agreement to killing Christians and killing men and women and throwing them in jail. That's the last we saw of him. He's the one that put that persecution on the church that drove the Hellenists out of, the Hellenist believers out of Jerusalem into Samaria. Now he's back again. And he hates Christianity. Notice, he's breathing threats and murder. There's an image being there, the image of of an animal that's just angry and snorting with anger. That's the image that's there. They're intentionally pulling that image out the way that it's written. So you're just picturing a guy just frothing with rage. That's how much he hates Christianity. How much he hates Jesus. He, he, he believes he loves God so much that his devotion to God should lead him to destroy Christians. Interesting, isn't it? Someone believes that they're that in love with God that, they can be, that, that hatred and murder would be a way of showing your devotion to God. That's just twisted, isn't it? It's twisted, but we have a lot of people who, who, who see the world that way today. Right, they, they think that anger like this will achieve the righteousness of God, which it won't. It won't do it, but this is where he's at. Why does he hate Christians so much? The simple reality is that Christians taught that, that it's only through Jesus that you have access to God. It's only through Jesus that you can be righteous. It's only through Jesus that you can please God. And that anything that you have done, any of your your heritage, your your devotion, anything that you would put on your resume as being Uh, something that that God would be pleased with, doesn't count. God only accepts the righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, if you're not in him, you cannot be accepted by God. Pretty exclusive message. Pretty exclusive message. Saul, with all of his devotion to God, would say, you cannot discount all of the obedience to law. You cannot discount all that we are, our heritage, all that we've done. You cannot say it's only through Jesus. And if you're going to say that, I'm going to kill you. Now I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the way the church is described. Do you notice when, when, when Saul goes to the, the, the officials to get permission to kill the, or arrest the, the men and the women, uh, I want you to notice that he goes in and, and the name of the church or the name of this movement was called The Way. That's what was on the official letter that Saul wrote. I am seeking permission to arrest men and women of the way. Now, you, you know why they got that name, the way, right? Because it was pretty simple. Jesus is the way. There's no other way, it's just him and him alone. That's it. They were so Christ centered, so exclusive, so focused on Jesus that they got the name, the way. I don't think they called themselves that. I think that's what people called them. They're the people of the way. There's only one way. It's their way. It's their way or hell. They're pretty exclusive people over there. And therefore, Saul seeks permission to do something that tradition would not have allowed them to do, which would be arrest women. They didn't typically do that. But to arrest men and women, which means that if you placed your faith in Christ, he would drag you out of your home. Drag your, you know, drag your wife out, drag your husband out, drag your kids out, whatever. Throw them in prison, beat them, seek, uh, you know, seek the death penalty on them. Pretty aggressive. Now, he hates Jesus, right? It is a struggle for Saul to follow Jesus because Jesus is the way. There's no other way. You're either living his path or you're not. And if you're not living his path, you're going to hell. This is the message. It's an exclusively tough message to preach. Or to receive, I should say, for Saul. This is his struggle. There's a tension in following Jesus for Saul. But notice how the story presses on. Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So you see the picture, right? It's pretty simple. He's going down to Damascus. He's going to arrest some believers down there. On his way down, this light shines on him. So powerful, so bright, it drops him to the ground. This voice speaks out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a pretty powerful statement. In fact, notice how Jesus says this. Notice Jesus does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my children? Why are you persecuting my beloved? He doesn't say any of that. He says, why are you persecuting me? You have to catch that point. And I'll tell you why I have to catch that point. There's a little thing that goes on, I think, every, every it's kind of a, uh, maybe goes on in every generation that, that comes of age. You know, the generation before me did it, my generation did it, the next generation is doing it, and, and this is it. It's this whole idea where, like, I don't need church, man, I just need Jesus, right? And I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I don't need the church, That statement is the equivalent of you saying, Steve, I want to be your best friend, but I hate your wife, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm sorry. No Christmas gifts will be exchanged. You cannot hate my wife and be my best friend, okay? You're going to take me and my wife. We're one. You cannot say, I love Jesus, but hate the church. You cannot sit around and rip the church, oh, the church, the church, the church, and expect Jesus to go, hey, I love that, Right? I don't want to go to your house for dinner and have you rip my wife. right? I'm going to get up and walk out. We're one. It's the same thing. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. This is my body. They're in me now. See, being part of a church isn't joining a location on a corner somewhere. It's connected to the person of Jesus. You place your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ, he says. You're in him you 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 rip another christian you're ripping jesus why are you persecuting me he says saul saul why are you doing this and so notice what happens saul gets this incredible moment where he hears this voice he knows what he's doing and all of a sudden jesus is there and he's realizing he's getting the first glimpse that jesus is alive Now, he doesn't know this yet, but suddenly there's this voice speaking, and it's connecting himself to this action that he's doing, and so what's going to happen? Notice verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, right? That's what I do. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, right? That, That would be really freaky. Giant light, Paul drops to the ground, his voice starts speaking out of heaven. Good freak out moment, right? That's what speechless and all that means, right? Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so freak out moment, he comes in. Now he's gone three days now, he goes three days without any food, without any water, and he's blind, completely blind. What is God doing? Well, you know, obviously you can see this. God is stopping him physically. God is showing him. Taking away his physical sight. Just to, to illustrate, man, you are blind. You can't see. You're going to need something to lift the scales off your eyes. right? You, you are in such rebellion. I'm going to stop you in your tracks. It's a powerful moment. And now he's at the mercy of God. There is nothing he can do. He's so distraught. He's not eating or drinking. So his body's getting weaker. Three days without water, that's a long time. I don't know physically what happens, but, but I do know you get weaker, right? Without food or water for three days. And of course, the stress of the whole thing. And So he's there, he's laid up. Now notice what happens. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man... Of Tarsus, named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So now we have this guy, Ananias. This is his one moment. This is it. This is his big moment of fame. We don't know anything about Ananias other than he lives in Damascus and he's a Christian. And God appears to him in a dream and says, I have a mission for you. There's this guy, Saul. I've shown him you in a vision. You need to go lay hands on the guy so he can get his sight back. Now, you're Ananias. You're kind of you're nobody, right? You're not you're not Peter preaching to thousands. You're not Philip disappearing and showing up in one city when God moves you to another. You're not part of these big miracles, you're not healing people. You're just an average guy in Damascus. God speaks to you in a vision which would get you really excited. And you would think at this moment, you'd say, this is it. This is my moment. I get to show the gospel love to this guy named Saul. How does Ananias respond? Is he excited? Of course, he's not excited at all. Notice his response. I think his response is way more balanced than my response would have been. So I give him a boatload of respect for this response. I'm not trashing him. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Okay, so Ananias is like, Okay, God, can we talk about this? Uh, you know that he has like legal authority to arrest me. You know, like, like I don't see the upside of this. He's already down. I think you won, Right? You took him out. He's blind. He's there in the room. I think this is a good moment. Why do we want to restore this guy? I he's not saying all that, but I'm kind of reading that all in there. But I'm just imagining resistance, right? This element of resistance, like it is really hard. Sometimes God calls you to do something that you see. All I see are risks there. All I see are risks there. I have sat with people, and we've talked about very risky situations, and when you place before them, hey, at this moment, this is a moment to love and to forgive. And they're like, do you realize the risks that are there to love and forgive this person? Do you realize the risks I will take? Yeah, it is really hard to follow Jesus. It might cost you everything. It is really hard. At this point, Ananias only knows... That Saul could have him arrested, that Saul could kill him. And God wants him to go and lay hands on this guy. Right? You get the tension. There is the tension of caring, right? Tension filled. There's a risk involved for Ananias, a huge risk, tough risk. We get that. But notice God's response to him, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go! Right? I mean, that's that's about all that needs to be said at this point. But God is gracious and is going to help him understand it. Go! For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. No, you're not the one who's going to suffer. He's the one who's going to suffer. Because I'm going to send him out to the nations. I'm going to send him out to places that it's going to be really tough. He's not going to suffer. You're not going to suffer. He will. Now, I don't think that's a spirit of vindication. I think he's just saying, God is saying, I have a plan. And one of the principles that I draw from this is that recognition that God never stops having a plan. I mean, that's just one of the things I have to trust in. Sometimes it's easy to think, especially in complex situations where We're either following is complex or caring is complex or you're to care for somebody who's in a bad situation. To think that God has no plan for that person who's in the bad situation. To kind of feel like, you know, Ichabod, the Lord has has, has departed. And and that's it. That's all that's there now is this person in their rebellion and their rebellion is just going to sweep across and there's nothing you can do about it. God never stops being God. He can't change his nature. God cannot stop working and carrying out his plan And so if his plan calls us to risk in caring, then you can trust God. Here's the great news. Ananias did not have to trust in Saul at all. You realize that? He didn't have to trust in Saul at all. It doesn't really matter. Saul could still be that pagan, and it could be God's will that Ananias gets killed by him at that moment. Ananias' trust has to be in God The moment Ananias' trust is in Saul, which is where his trust began, do you see who this guy is? I go into this room, he arrests me. What's he doing? He's saying, my care can only be contingent upon how far I can trust Saul. Do you catch that? And God is saying, no, your care goes as far as you can trust me. Your care can go as far as you can trust me. And if you trust that I'm God, then you can go. Our problem is like Ananias, we trust, we care only as far as we can trust the person we're caring for, right? And therefore, once you get to know me, you recognize don't trust me a whole lot. <laughs> I'm a sinner. And I get to know you, and I won't trust you because you're a sinner. And there's the reality of the situation. But I can follow and I can care. As much as I can trust God. And this is what God is saying to Ananias. I have a plan. Go, trust my plan. Go, trust my plan. So, notice what happens. Verse 17. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. I want you to notice something. The very first thing I want you to notice is how Ananias addressed Saul. What's that word there? Brother. Brother Saul. God has a plan. He trusted. So what we get in Ananias is that he did trust the plan of God. He did trust that God was doing something in Saul's life. Because his faith was in God, he could then go to this guy and welcome him as a brother. This was an affectionate term. This was a family term. We're one. I can't imagine what that must have been like. It's, it, it, it really would be the equivalent of one of our great enemies. You know, the great, the great enemies that are coming and trying to kill Christians. And you're sitting in the room with a leader of that group. And you say, brother... I'm trusting God as a plan. I'm trusting God now. And what happens? He's saying, It was Jesus who appeared to you. Right? Ananias comes with the message. It was Jesus. He's alive. And right away, the Spirit of God came. His eyes, you know, the, like something like scales. It wasn't that there were scales over his eyes, it was more like his sight just kind of turned off, turned on, similar to if something were, was in front of your eyes and it fell off. And he regains his sight. And right away, he trusts Jesus. And what happens in the, in, the, in the first century when you trusted Jesus? They got you wet right away, man. You get baptized right away. You, are in, you died with him. You rose with him, man. You are in Christ. You're in Christ. And now he starts to eat again. It's very powerful. But the tension isn't over. We move to a new tension. There's now going to be a tension of advancing and a tension of caring. Again, caring's going to show up. But there's going to be now, Saul is now turned, and he's going to start to advance, and he's going to realize advancing isn't easy. It's tough. Notice, 19 picks up again, the rest of 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So right away, Saul becomes an evangelist. He sees Jesus, and all of that passion that went towards trying to hurt people and tear down the church and attack the church became one where now he's going to use his leverage as a Pharisee, go into the temple and start reasoning with the religious people. And he's sitting in Damascus with the believers and and in the temple with the Jews, showing them Jesus. I mean, his understanding of the Old Testament was so profound that the moment he saw Jesus, he could see Jesus everywhere. To such a degree that the people are like, how in the world could you, you know, just five days ago you were trying to kill these people? And now you're advocating for them in such a degree that uh, you've actually like reasoned us out of, out of our ability to even fight against you. You're so brilliant. How did this happen? It's a powerful moment. Now, here's what goes on, and I want to show you something. I want to show you that, that, that this kind of first set of verses I just read, 19 there through 22, just sets the table that Paul is beginning to reason with people about Jesus. Now, what I want to show you, is that Paul goes to every major group in Israel at this point in time? I'm gonna show it to you here, and in every major group he gets resistance. And and he goes to the Jews, he goes to the church, and he goes to the Hellenists or the, the Greek speaking Jews. And in all cases he gets resistance. Because you see, advancing the kingdom is tough. Not only that, the church is going to have to get over all of its fears and its hang-ups to love this guy. Because they don't even want to love him. Because caring is tough. We're going to see this. Now notice. So let's look at the first group. He goes to the Jews, and I like to say this way. He preached to the Jews, and he was hated by the Jews. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So what's going on? He is reasoning in the synagogue. He's, getting, he's so good at convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven. And he's proving it all from the 39 books of the Old Testament. And he's going through all 39 books and finally, the Jews say, "We have to stop this guy. We have to kill him." And so now rumblings come. We're going to kill this guy." And so now he's being hidden by the disciples in Damascus. And the Jews have people watching the gates because they know that you know the cities, all the cities had gates around them. They knew that these people would be trying to sneak Saul out at night through the gate, and so they've got people everywhere, and so they realize something we're going to have to get him over the wall so they make this basket and they in the middle of the night they lower him down this wall and uh, and he has to escape out of a city because the jews want to kill him there they hate him that much so now what's he going to do well you go back to jerusalem if you're Saul go to the church but the church struggles so now he goes and he preaches to the church and he's resisted by the church he's not hated by the church But he's resisted. Notice verse 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So now Barnabas shows up in the scene here. But Saul comes into Jerusalem Christians are running from him. And he started saying, say, no, I'm a believer of Jesus. They were trying to kill me in Damascus. Trust me. Yeah, right. This is one of your plots. You're going to infiltrate your way in here, and then you're going to kill us all. We don't want to care for you. We don't, well, we're not accepting you into our fold. There is absolutely no way you can believe, be a believer in Jesus. You, you understand, we have spoken. We know everything, and there's no way that God could work in your life. Now, they weren't being that harsh about it, but they're they're struggling, and you can understand the fear, can't you? Right? You can understand the resistance. Sometimes God works so powerfully that he just moves beyond our capacity to comprehend. That's what you have here. They can't get this. They're struggling. So what has to happen? In order for the church to care for Paul, because right now he's a wanted man, there are Jews who are trying to kill him. He needs some kind of safe protection, doesn't he? And he needs the church to come in. What needs to happen? God raises up Barnabas. Barnabas, we've heard of Barnabas before. His name means son of encouragement. He hears the story of Saul, and he advocates for Saul to the apostles. He goes and he says, No, guys, this is, he's the real deal. Jesus spoke to him. And Barnabas puts everything on the line Uses all of his reputation, so to speak, to convince the apostles. And it works. So now the apostles accept him. So now Paul is in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem there are Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews are Greek-speaking Jews. So he's already got the, the Hebrew Jews mad at him. So he's going to now shift his attention to the Jews that are from you know, other countries. Turkey, Iran, Iraq that are there in Jerusalem and they don't speak Hebrew so they're going to speak Greek, or Arabic and so now he's going to reason with them and he preaches to the Hellenistic Jews and he's hated by them. Notice what happens in 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem meaning the disciples accepted him and he preached boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned this they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, so now he's with the Hellenists and he is explaining to them Jesus. They are arguing back. What happens? They now want to kill him. So now Paul has basically the entire Jewish population hating him, wanting to kill him. Because he so understood the person of Jesus, was so good at articulating Jesus that the people wanted to kill him rather than submit to Jesus because in order to follow Jesus, you have to follow him as Lord. People are okay with a nice, fuzzy, cuddly Jesus. They like that. But the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one that you must follow with all your life, people don't want to hear that message, right? They want, to, they want Jesus added to their life, but they do not want to submit and surrender their life to Jesus. So, uh, they don't want to hear that message, but yet Paul convinced them. So what does the, the church do? They send him back to his hometown, which is kind of up in Turkey, the southern part of Turkey. So they smuggle him, they take him from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, so they go up north, and then they keep going north, and they eventually take him over to southern Turkey, where he hides out for quite a while until everything calms down. Okay, there's the conversion of Saul. Very powerful section. But here's the reality of this story. There is a tension when you follow Jesus. There's a tension. Paul felt the tension, and everybody he preached to felt the tension. What's the tension? The tension is Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. That's the tension. You follow him as Lord. The message is he is the way. There's no other way. You are either in Christ or out of Christ. That's it. It's a very exclusive message. It's such a hopeful message, though. Because the hopeful message is that Jesus says, I'm going to do it all for you. So now you just follow me. And you can get rid of this yucky life of yours, and you can be in me, and you can have my life, and the blessings that come from being in me. But it's all about Jesus, and there's a tension that people have. There's a tension in caring. Because caring puts us into complex relationships. Showing love is complex. Loving your enemies is complex. It's hard for us. We like to take sides. We like to say this person's good, this person's bad. We'll hang with the good person and we'll attack the bad person. In the name of Jesus, we'll attack them. Right? We, kinda, we like that. Our flesh likes that. We feel like we're holy, like Paul was when he was killing the Christians. It's hard to serve And to turn the other cheek and to care with the type of care that Jesus had. The type of care that Stephen had that when when these guys were throwing rocks and trying to crush his skull, he's saying, God, forgive them. Forgive them. They have no clue what's going on. Have mercy on their soul. It's so hard. Mercy is not the first response when we're sinned against, right? It's not the first response. Justice is. It's hard to care. But following Jesus and caring for others leads us to that tension. There's a tension in advancing because we do have to stand before people and say, you know, Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. I'm not going to offer Jesus as a way or that all ways are found in Jesus. I'm going to say Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And you might hate me for that. You might resist that. Family members might not want to have me around at Christmas time for that reason. But it's the truth, right? It's the truth of it. There's a tension in advancing. But in the midst of all of this, our trust isn't in others. And that's the key that we have to recognize. Our trust isn't in others. When, when you're trying to put your trust in others, you know, is this, is this a situation that's safe for me to share? Is this a situation that's safe for me to follow Jesus? Is this a situation that's safe for me to advance? If I'm trying to look at the situation to be set up good enough for me to follow, care, or advance, it never will be. Because my trust isn't in people. My trust isn't in you. My trust isn't in whether or not you do things right. My trust has to be in God. That Jesus is the Lord, that, that, that He has a plan, and that He is in control. I have to trust that. If I don't, I will never follow Jesus, I'll never care for others, and I'll never advance His kingdom. Because I'll always be afraid of you. There will always be a risk in loving you There will always be a risk in sharing the gospel out there. There will always be a risk in taking my family to some place where we're going to share Christ and some bad things might happen. I can't go there. It's going to risk my family. It's going to risk me. There's always something bad out there, right? And so my trust isn't in that everything's going to get all cleaned up to make it safe for me. My trust is that God has a plan. God has a plan. That plan always isn't going to be as nice as Ananias has worked out. Sometimes that plan is going to be like Paul. You're going to be running for your life. Could be. But God has a plan. And so what resolves the tension in following and caring and advancing is a belief that God is in control, that he's worthy to be followed, and that he has a plan. That's where our faith has to rest. Why don't we pray to that end for our lives as we seek to follow, care, and advance. Would you join me in prayer? Follow these stories, in, in many ways, we see ourselves in them. We can see ourselves in, in many ways in, in just looking at rebellion of people or looking at struggles that people have. But Lord, I just pray, God, that, that we would see You in these stories. That we would see that You are worthy to be followed. That You are on the throne. And that you do have a plan. And that situations are not running out of control as much as they feel like they are. And therefore we can follow you, care for others, and advance your kingdom. Because we trust in you. Lord, help us because we don't. Help us because our flesh doesn't go there. So Lord, show that to us quickly. And then show us the glory of Jesus that we could rest in that and we can be found faithful as we seek to follow and care and make your name known to the nations. Thank you, God, for these accounts that build our faith in you. In Christ's name, amen.